Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Hey, everyone. So this is our first live podcast episode, which we recorded at Cosmic Coffee and Beer Garden in Austin, Texas, during South by Southwest. To everyone who came out and was there in the flesh, thank you, thank you, thank you. It was great to meet you. And special thanks to Mark Nathan for organizing the event. It was so much, so much fun. I chatted with Jason Karp, who is the founder of Hugh Kitchen, Hugh Chocolate, and CEO and founder of Human Co. Human Co. is a holding company that's invested in healthy living. We're going to learn more about their brand, Snow Days, Against the Grain, and Cosmic Bliss in my chat with Jason. And also, we're going to discuss the recent rebrand of Coconut Bliss to Cosmic Bliss. This is a great episode as we question what are the values within Better For You, and if there is a bifurcation and maybe separation within the Better For You movement. Without further ado, here's Jason. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, everyone, so much for letting us crash the uh, Wake Up CBG, your your monthly event. This is going to be a lot of fun. And Jason, thanks so much for uh, for being here. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. This is great. For those of you who don't know, Jason is the founder and CEO of Human Co. We're going to learn a lot more about that today. If you're interested in better for you products, this is absolutely the best place to be. So let's get started. So Jason, you are a hedge fund guy. How has your health journey helped shape your professional journey, and why did you kind of transition into like CPG? Yeah, so uh, I, some of you probably know this because I see a lot of familiar faces in the crowd. Thank you for coming, by the way. I was in the finance industry for just over 20 years. In my early 20s, I got really sick. This is back in 2001, 2000 timeframe. And uh, I was diagnosed with a few different autoimmune diseases, and, and I was actually going blind when I was 23 years old. And they, they told me uh, what I had was incurable. I've always been someone who thought I was healthy. I couldn't believe that I got that sick that quickly after college. And I just did a lot of exploration. I went into a lot of what at the time seemed bizarre, but now they call functional medicine, which is this uh, sort of philosophy about treating the root causes of disease instead of the symptoms. And I cured myself over the course of about a year and a half with food. As you can probably see, I'm not blind. After that, I stayed in the finance industry, but I had to live a much healthier life. I had to be very focused on what I put in my body and on my body. And I became really interested in you know, what's causing illness in modern society. And I wanted to change that. In 2010, my family and I, my, my wife, my brother-in-law, Jordan Brown, we created a restaurant in New York City called Hugh Kitchen. Hugh stands for human. Most people know about Hugh from our chocolate. But the philosophy and our slogan back then was get back to human because a lot of my research and a lot of my training over the last 20 years was really around anthropology, human evolution, and how we are living today with the way we've evolved. That was the beginning of kind of how I got into health and wellness. It started off as really a journey to try to get myself healthier, and then it became a much bigger mission on trying to help everyone else get healthier. I appreciate that. So was the goal, like the breakout product or the first product was Hugh Chocolate, which I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. Was the goal always to start with the chocolate company and eventually create other products? Or what was kind of like the first test per se? No, I think a lot of people don't realize that Hugh Chocolate was kind of an accident. It wasn't intentional. If I had known then what I know now, I probably never would have done it. 
You know, it started as a restaurant. For those of you who, who had visited Hugh Kitchen when it was open in New York City, the whole restaurant was gluten-free, dairy-free, refined sugar-free. Every animal product in the store was, was sourced in a sustainable way from wild animals. The beef was grass-fed, pasture-raised. The chickens were free-range and organic. Right before we opened the restaurant, we were baking a lot of glu- grain-free and gluten-free items, things like cookies, muffins, scones, etc. But we couldn't find chocolate chips that met our guardrails. We had very strict guardrails of what we allowed, and we couldn't find chocolate chips that had no refined sugar, had no dairy, had no chemicals, preservatives, or even emulsifiers. And there were a few healthy chocolates at the time, but we thought they didn't taste great. And so we ended up having to make our own chocolate chips for the baked goods. And the chocolate was so good that we had the idea of converting them into chocolate bars, which originally we just sold in the store. And then we got kind of lucky. One of our chefs, his girlfriend, worked at uh, the Columbus Circle location of Whole Foods, and he kept bringing her home our chocolate bars. And she said, these are the best-tasting healthy chocolate I've ever had. Can we start selling them in Whole Foods? And we said, okay. And that was how we got into the CPG business. Wow, that's uh, <laughs> that's fascinating because when I talk to entrepreneurs, they're just you know calling buyers and buyers and buyers at Whole Foods. So that's super lucky that you kind of had that. It was totally method. lucky. Yeah. And originally, we had no outside investors. My family controlled 100% of the company. It was really a passion project. For those of you who know restaurants, they're generally not good investments. I was a professional investor by training, and so I sort of knew the odds of me doing a restaurant were very poor. And it was more of a passion project where, frankly, we wanted a place where we could eat every day and we wanted a place where we could prove to the world that there was a way to make healthier stuff actually taste good. No, that's great. With you, Chocolate, you eventually do raise money, right? Yes, yes. Um, and then you scale the business. You event- Why did you end up selling to Mondelez? Much later in our journey, so, you know, it's kind of interesting. I was obviously very fortunate in my previous career to be able to fund a business like Hugh Kitchen on my own. We didn't take outside investors for the first many years, primarily because what our philosophy was at the time was controversial. It was the prices of everything were much higher. Our sourcing standards were higher than anybody that we knew of in terms of the quality of the ingredients, how we source the ingredients, our commitment to things like fair trade and fair practices. And I, as a professional investor, I had seen that a lot of professional investors, particularly in the public markets, professional investors in companies of all the big food companies that are public stocks, most professional investors care strictly around shareholder returns. And I didn't want to have arguments with professional investors about should we have more humane, more sustainable sourcing around certain products because it's more expensive and our margins are lower. I never wanted to have that argument with an investor uh, because I heard those arguments. I heard those arguments around chicken. I remember we had an argument. We had very expensively sourced free-range organic chicken, and we worked with specific farms, and it was twice the price of just what I'll call conventional organic chicken that didn't have standards the way we had it. And you know, they said, well, why don't you just use the regular chicken? Nobody's gonna notice the difference. And I said, I'll notice the difference. And I don't ever want to violate trust because I've had to get to where I got in terms of my own health by being very strict. And so I never wanted to have that discussion. And so we eventually did take outside money and we eventually had uh, Mondelez, who's the largest snacking company in the world, take a small minority position in our company in 2019. And we weren't intending on selling it. 
uh, and this is all public information, um, but we ended up having another very large company make an unsolicited bid for Hue, which created a bidding war. Um, and because we did have outside investors at that point, and I'm a fiduciary, the price got to a level where I had to sell it for fiduciary reasons. And so we sold it to Mondelez. I thought they were the best of the partners. They've acquired several uh, better-for-you brands, like Tate's Cookies and Perfect Bar were some of their more recent acquisitions. And they showed us, while they were an investor and they were also on our board, they showed us that they're actually very responsible they're really focused on making snacking healthier. And I watched their behavior over the course of two years, and I thought they would be a good steward of our family's legacy. That makes a lot of sense. I think looking back, would you have taken outside money if you had to start you all over again? Yeah. You would? Yeah, yeah, okay. I would have. Because I think we were very deliberate of who we chose. Yeah. You know, we, we sort of curated who our investors were. And by the way, we've done the same thing with Human Co. Oh, you know, we've yeah, been yeah. very thoughtful about who our investors are because... It was really important to me that the people understood why we're doing what we're doing. It was important to me that people authentically want to help everybody and that people authentically want to make the world a better place and that they kind of walk the talk. And so we were very thoughtful about who joined us. We also wanted to have strategic investors. And by strategic, I mean people that can actually help with things that money can't buy. You know, and we had plenty of... of kind of vocal ambassadors who care about the mission and sort of raised awareness that there are ways to do healthier food without compromising. I mean, so we've had some amazing investors over the years that through their own channels, through Instagram, through Twitter, through social, through their own network have just promoted the awareness of both Hue and HumanCo. That's great. And so, and I'm glad you brought up HumanCo because for those that aren't familiar, what is HumanCo? So HumanCo, if you now know what my family and I did with Hue, HumanCo is sort of my second chapter. It's really the culmination of kind of everything I've done over the last 22 years. HumanCo is a, is a holding company, or you can think of it as, if you think of like what General Mills is, or Unilever, or Procter & Gamble, these are called conglomerates. They're also called holding companies, where it's a parent company that sits at the top that has multiple brands underneath. The same philosophy and ethos that we did with Hue, but Hue was strictly, from a consumer packaged goods perspective, Hue was really chocolate, cookies, and crackers, uh, shelf-stable snacking. And as a conscious consumer, and I have a family, and I have two children who are, my daughter is strictly gluten-free also, I wanted to create more brands that had the same philosophy and ethos as Hue, but in different categories, in the categories that, frankly, I think consumers need better options. And we learned a ton, both good and bad, in the Hue kind of journey. And along the way, we created, almost by accident, like an ecosystem of all sorts of different resources from where to source organic ingredients, how to deal with supply chain, how to deal with logistics. You know, we've become friendly with many executives at many big companies who are trying to move the ball forward. And we sort of looked around and we realized we had all of these kind of unique advantages in an ecosystem that would make us more qualified and more able to create and invest in companies that are trying to do better for the world. And so HumanCo started as just an idea. It was started by uh, me and, and my partner, a gentleman named Ross Berman, who's been a dear friend of mine for about 20 years. And our idea was to create kind of the first mission-driven uh, holding company that can provide better options 
than a lot of the big food companies. And as a professional investor who studied all the big food companies for the last 20 years, you know, many of them are actually trying to do better, but they have some constraints, which is they have a lot of very unhealthy options that are the bulk of their business. And it's very hard for them to shift without cannibalizing their core business. And so if we, if we start with something that's new that doesn't have those legacy shackles, we can do things a new way. And that was basically the idea behind HumanCo. And today, we started it about two and a half years ago. We were sort of like a COVID baby in, in, in some respects. And we now have three brands. We uh, created one from scratch called Snow Days. So that was sort of the second company I built from scratch. Snow Days is the first. It was really meant to go after the sort of frozen appetizer section. We started with a very healthy, organic, sustainably sourced pizza bite. I grew up on Totino's pizza rolls. If any of you know Totino's pizza rolls, uh, I used to think they were delicious, but I never used to look at the ingredient label. And if you look at the ingredient label, it's pretty shocking. It's, it's over 70 ingredients. It actually uses, and it says on the label, imitation cheese. And it's not because it's vegan. It's actually just imitation. You know, I have kids who like convenient food, and I like finger food, and we wanted to create something that had never been done before. So we have the first 100% organic, gluten-free, grain-free pizza bite. We use grass-fed, sustainably sourced mozzarella cheese. We infuse seven vegetables into the sauce. It has the nutritionals of a meal. And we also only use olive oil as opposed to refined canola oil, which is in a lot of products. And that was the first brand uh, that we created. And then we also bought two brands. We bought uh, the largest grain-free, gluten-free pizza company called Against the Grain. They're based out of Brattleboro, Vermont. It's a family company. They had no outside investors. They sourced their ingredients from local Vermont farms. And the two founders of that company are both 70 years old and really wanted uh, somebody to preserve their legacy of doing things right. And so we... Against the Grain is predominantly pizza, but also has uh, grain and gluten-free breads. And then the third company, which we bought uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, is called Cosmic Bliss. It was called Coconut Bliss. Coconut Bliss is also a 16-year-old family business that was known for its uh, plant-based organic ice creams. Got it. No, no, no. No, thanks so much. So to be clear... Human Co. Holding company conglomerate. You own obviously you you do M and A uh, purchase brands, but also incubate your own brands. Correct. You don't have minority investments or any or any sort of that thing. We have a couple minority okay. investments. We have a minority investment in a plant based uh, cheese company called Monty's. Okay. But we are not a fund, and you know the difference is is you know we are a singular company, and our goal is to grow our brands all under one umbrella, as opposed to just investing in them. And then, you know, having to sell them to be paid. We don't, we don't take fees. You know, we're all completely aligned uh, with our investors. I'm the largest shareholder and investor in Human Co. And so I wanted to have a, a, a sort of singular focus where everybody has the exact same alignment in building, you know, better companies together. So how do you think about introducing new products at Human Co.? Whether it's looking at and evaluating other brands looking to buy or you incubating your own products within Better For You? What's your value system within Better For You? This is a good question, this concept of a value system. And over the years, I've, I've, I've seen lots of different values in food. It can be a controversial area because a lot of people have different values. Most of the time, you can try to do better in sort of all values, but at times, you know, you have to make compromises in certain areas. And so 
our approach, and, and we sort of say that our approach or philosophy for Human Co. is making healthier living more approachable and more sustainable. But there's kind of pieces in that. And so our approach is human health first. If we had to sequence or order them, human health first, planet health second, and sort of animal welfare third. And that's not to say that all three aren't immensely important, but sometimes you have to make trade-offs. And I'll give you an example. Hue Chocolate, when we first started developing Hue Chocolate, you know, there's food safety issues that you have to adhere to to have scalable products for people. And we wanted to show that we could have much better organic fair trade chocolate more reachable to more people. But to keep the chocolate food safe and for you know, preserving it and making sure it, it actually survived, we had to wrap the chocolate in plastic. And so if any of you bought Hue Chocolate a year ago, our outer wrapping is a compostable and recyclable paper wrapper. But the inside is what's called a plastic flow wrap. I hate plastic. I try to avoid single-use plastic every chance I can. But that was the only option. And so we sort of had a decision like, do we not sell Hue Chocolate, or do we have to have it with a plastic wrapper? And we're always trying to do better. And about four months ago, through the help of Mondelez, we actually found a compostable wrapper. So now if you buy new Hue Chocolate and you open it up, you will see that there is a compostable inner wrapper, and that was sort of progress that we had to make. But I, I think our value system is really around humans first, because I believe that you know, we have multiple crises or epidemics going on simultaneously. We have a climate crisis, we have a human health crisis, I mean, we have a war going on right now. There's always things that we have to worry about. And for me, given what I went through, when I was sick, and you guys have probably noticed this when you're sick, like when people are sick, you can't do anything. You can't help anybody. It doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter what your resources are. If you don't have your, your health, you have zero. And so I believe that we have to restore human health first, and that's sort of the sequence we make. You know? and, and there's other people, by the way, and this is obviously subjective, and everyone has different values. There are some people who are putting planet health uh, over human health, and that's okay too. But for us, human health comes first, and that's why we're called Human Co. Do you think that within Better For You, I think that you started to allude to it, but there's a kind of a bifurcation or separation between those that are putting products that are maybe better for the planet, but not actually better for you first over better for you versus uh, better for the planet? There's plenty of examples of that happening right now. And, you know, I think I'm pretty outspoken about it. You know, I think to solve these simultaneous sort of crises or epidemics, we need a lot of solutions. I'm for all solutions as long as people are open-minded and educated about them. You know, I think there have been a lot of terms that have been greenwashed. There are many plant-based items that are definitely better for cows, but are worse for humans. And I think we should know that. Um, There are many plant-based items that are highly processed, that are filled with many chemicals, that are being touted as being healthy. Some of them are actually not healthier for the planet. Some of them are. Some of them are unequivocally better for cows, but many of them are, are not healthy for humans. And, and, you know, I sit on the board of the Tufts Nutrition School, which is the top nutrition school in the United States. We have several professors. The dean of the Tufts Nutrition School is actually on our board, uh, as is the head of sustainability at Tufts. And I just think it's important that everyone sort of is open-minded and, and open, eyes wide open about this stuff. So there are plenty of things that are being created right now that are addressing different needs. And I think as consumers, you just have to decide what's more important to you. And it's everyone's prerogative to choose that. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like even the, the term plant-based, it seems like it's kind of a catch-all term for being you know, better for you. When, as you point out, there's, I'm sure, a lot of uh, plant-based products that might be better for the planet, but are they actually better for you to actually digest? So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. Now, I mean, in all this realm, and like the better for you, and of course, with Hue and Human Co., um, it's all very premium, premium pricing. I know you brought up like the chicken story about how it's double the price um, yep. because of St. Louis Horse. Um, can you talk about maybe like the pros and cons of being maybe in the premium space and, what, and why you think people are actually willing to pay more? Yeah, this is a controversial topic. I don't think it should be. In many other categories outside of food, People have shown a proclivity for better value, better quality, this concept of you get what you pay for. For some reason, in this country, with food, we've sort of gotten away from that. And like anything, you do get what you pay for. I have, personally, I have disdain for ultra-cheap, ultra-processed junk food. Because ultimately, you know, I think one's... What you put in your body is literally the greatest investment you can make. I think for a lot of people, health is a slow-moving glacial process, and so it's hard to observe the detrimental effects of eating you know, 10, 20 years of really poor food. If you go to other countries, like Japan, France, or Italy, they take pride in the quality of their agriculture, the quality of their ingredients. They actually have disdain for really cheap food. And if you go back 40, 50 years ago, this country, we used to spend roughly the same as a percentage of our income, so normalized for income levels, on food as a percentage of our sort of annual compensation. We used to spend the same percentage as those countries. And today we spend roughly half. We spend half as a percentage of our income on food that they do. I think a lot of consumers are learning that you do have to vote with your dollars. I think there's like a skepticism, and I think it's well-deserved, that when you see more expensive items that you're being ripped off. You know, what we try to do at HumanCo is we try to be transparent about how we source what we source, how we work with farms, how we work with, with people, and, you know, better practices. And it is more expensive. It, it is more expensive to do things better. But I think in the grand scheme of things, it's about discretionary choices. We've spent a lot of time on this at Tufts. And there's been a lot of research on this. There's a myth that you have to be wealthy to eat healthy. And it turns out that you only have to spend $1 to $2 a day, incremental, to dramatically upgrade your diet in terms of fruits, vegetables, more organic food, better practices. And, and basically, anyone who has a smartphone, anyone who has a streaming service, whether it's Netflix or Spotify or Hulu or whatever, anyone who's ever had a Starbucks, they can all afford to have healthier options. They're choosing not to. I think part of our job is to show people the, the return, to show people that spending more on better quality products goes towards creating better practices at the end of the day. And so I, I think it's a good, fair discussion about how to sort of raise awareness around that. And it's really an invisible hand kind of economy. If more people demand better practices and pay for the better practices, more farms, more companies will start actually doing it because that's where the money is. And so, you know, I'm a big proponent of showing people that you do get what you pay for and also being very clear with everybody when they look at a huge chocolate bar, they look at anything at Humico and they're like, wow, that's really expensive. You know, I'm happy to show you that our margins are, are half of what the big food companies are, that we're making actually way less money than the junk food because we're sourcing things and passing it to you as the consumer 
And I think that's really important that you're just basically buying better stuff with better practices. A couple years ago, I know you pointed out that you acquired Coconut Bliss, which was a plant-based ice cream company. And you decided to introduce dairy and obviously rebrand it to Cosmic Bliss. What was the rethinking behind that decision? Yeah, so this is a really interesting learning lesson. If you guys have, have seen this, there's a lot to reflect on this. So the background is, is, is Coconut Bliss is about 16 years old. Um, it was uh, known as a plant-based vegan ice cream company. It actually was owned by a dairy farming family in Eugene, Oregon, all public information, um, because they wanted to have a plant-based option. Uh, the daughter of the family uh, was really interested in more uh, plant-based options and dairy-free options. And, you know, part of our job is to talk to lots of consumers and, and to sort of understand where people's desires are. And it turns out, you know, at this point in time, obviously plant-based is well understood and well accepted, and, and we're a big fan and advocate of that. You know, most of Hue products, for example, are vegan. But there are a lot of people who still consume animal products and still consume dairy. In fact, it's over 97% of people. Um, and over 97% of ice cream sold in this country is still dairy. And the vast majority of that dairy comes from factory farms. And as a company, HumanCo is against factory farming and against unfair treatment of animals. And we wanted to provide a better option for those people who still like consuming dairy from time to time. And it didn't exist. You know, there are a few organic ice creams out there. I have not found a, a scaled grass-fed dairy ice cream in the country. And I haven't found one that focuses on regenerative and organic practices. And so we spent a long period of time over the last, you know, really year talking to different farms, talking to different uh, people about is there a way to do a much better dairy? And there's something in the, in the animal welfare community called the five freedoms. And the five freedoms is considered sort of the gold standard for animal welfare. And it's things like, you know, is the animal free from pain? Is it free from hunger? Is it free to enjoy the way that they live in the wild, like eat grass, which is what cows eat in the wild? And we wanted to produce a better option for people who still like dairy. And it turns out that a lot of people still prefer dairy-based cheese to plant-based cheese. Uh, and a lot of people still prefer dairy-based ice cream to plant-based ice cream. But there wasn't an option that we felt was much more humane, a much better choice than the industrial factory farming choice. And frankly, it's actually much more delicious. So we developed what is now launched this week. It's the first 100% grass-fed, organic, clean-label ice cream in the country. And, and we're very proud of it. Um, but what was interesting, and, and you know, I think it's, it's interesting for this crowd, is that it was very well received uh, by most people. You know, we're trying to be more inclusive and provide better options for everybody. And our general approach and our, our sort of implicit, it's not, an, it's not really an explicit slogan, is sustainability for all diets. No matter what your diet is, no matter what your preference is, no matter what your value system is, if you want to live better, we want to provide you with better options. And we had a small minority, but a very vocal one, come out that's very anti any animal products, any animal practices, whether it's dairy or meat or leather. And it was really interesting to sort of hear this conversation because we're trying to preach tolerance. We're trying to preach tolerance for other people's value systems and to not judge. And, you know, I feel like some of, and I applaud all the plant-based innovations that are coming 
because we're all trying to solve these problems, but some of the community is doing it in a method of shaming. And we are very much against the notion of shaming or intolerance because I've just met so many people over the years that have so many different value systems. And it's been an interesting conversation. And, and unfortunately, there have been some people that are not tolerant and not understanding. When you look around and you think about brands within the Better For You space, like how do you approach your marketing and branding behind your products? I mean, I think they all have some similarities. You know, I think uh, one of our other value systems, which I didn't talk about, is there is a bifurcation happening right now in uh, health and wellness. There are many companies that are taking the approach of what I call sort of techno food or food tech. You know, these are things like growing flesh in a Petri dish or using 3D printing methods to print meat or synthetically using uh, genetics and bioengineering to create things which all obviously have the noble goal of reducing environmental footprint. But I still think there's a lot of opportunity in working with farms and working with agriculture and going back to a way, and this is really what regenerative agriculture is trying to espouse, is there are many ways to still work with nature that reduces our footprint, that reduces greenhouse gas emissions, that's much more uh, humane in how you work with animals. That's been a, a big focus of ours from a value system perspective is still working with nature. If you look at all of our brands and all of our products, they're, all of our ingredients are sourced from farms. We don't do anything that's, that's produced in a laboratory or bioengineered. And so we market our things as wholesome. We describe them, you know, most of what we do, everything we do is non-GMO, everything we do is gluten-free, almost everything we do is organic. And uh, it's really about creating better options that taste amazing. And we focus on foods that bring joy. And that's really an outgrowth of kind of what I went through. You know, when I was sick and I had to eat a very restricted diet, I had to eat a lot of healthy things that tasted like shit. And it really was depressing. And if any of you have ever had to been on, on different diets, you'll notice that like, I believe food is a part of community. And food is something that should bring joy and pleasure. And food is an inherent aspect of human culture. And so we focused on comfort foods that historically have been really junky, filled with a lot of crap, and really tried to upgrade them and make them so they're still amazingly delicious. Our first variable is always, is it delicious? Does this pass the kid test? Like, will my children eat it and not know it's healthy? And if the answer is yes, we go. And so that's like a big part of, of how we sort of describe what our uh, brands stand for. No, 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 that makes a lot of sense. How do you also feel specifically about cell-based meat. I know there's a few brands starting to like come into market and there's been a ton of research about it. it it's, um, as you would say, techno food, right? It's, it's built in a lab, but a lot of people don't think that it's actually genetically uh, modified as like an option of being uh, sustainable and uh, maybe better for the planet, but also be, maybe better for you too. I'd say on a lot of these innovations, I'm more agnostic. I'm not anti, I'm just agnostic. And I'm agnostic with a skeptical mindset. And the reason is, is because you know, it's also based on my own learnings and my own study, which is around anthropology and human evolution and, and sort of how we evolved our diets as human beings, how we evolved as human beings, you know, particularly since we've been hominids and been on two feet. And you can learn a tremendous amount by just studying kind of evolution of both animals and humans. There have been many food products in the last 50 years or something involved in the food system that the FDA deemed safe at one point, and 10 years later went, whoops, not safe. 
whether it was carcinogenic. Glyphosate, which is the herbicide that Monsanto was very well known for, is banned in many countries because it's a known carcinogen. There have been plenty of drugs that were proven safe that later were proven unsafe. Even things like trans fats at one point were deemed safe. Olestra was deemed safe. And so I adhere to this notion of long-term human safety studies. I do not want to personally subject me or my family to things that don't have long-term human safety data. And we've learned a lot about what humans can eat and not eat over 200,000 years, which is a long period of time. And so when it comes to cell-based meats, you know, my personal view is when you eat the flesh of an animal, part of what makes animals and us robust is our ability to survive stressors. We have become robust. We have become what we have because we have survived and dealt with millions of stressors you know, whether it's gravity or it's wind or it's bacteria or it's viruses. Like, we are who we are because we've survived all of these, you know, bombardments of stressors. And when people try to understand, like, is the meat grown in a Petri dish the same as a meat of a, a wild organic chicken on a farm? And the way I try to describe it is, you know, you look like a healthy guy. If I were to eat you, you know, you clearly have a lot of, of stuff that you've been through over the last, I don't know how old you are. You know, you have muscle, you know, you probably work out, you know, or, you know, if you take like a perfect specimen of, a, of like a beautiful human, you know, take like Brad Pitt in uh, Fight Club, you know, and clearly he looked like somebody, if you were a cannibal, you'd probably want to eat. If you took Brad Pitt and cloned him and then grew him in a Matrix-like pod as a clone, with no gravity, no food, no walking around, no working out, is that Brad Pitt going to be the same flesh as the Brad Pitt who grew up? And the answer, of course, is unequivocally no, it's not. And there are many things in science that we still can't measure. And, and I am very humble that there are many things in science that we still don't know and we can't measure. And just because uh, flesh grown in a Petri dish might have the same amino acid profile, might cook the same, might smell the same, might taste the same, it doesn't mean it's the same. There might be things that we're not measuring in the creation of flesh. And so I just try to be agnostic about this stuff. And I obviously applaud that it is way, way, way better for sustainability to do it that way. But I don't know if it's good for humans. And I don't know if it's food safe. Uh, and we need probably 10, 20 years of data before we know that if we genetically modify a molecule that has never been ingested in human history and then we start eating it and the FDA spends two years on saying it's safe, I don't know if it's fully safe because we have plenty of evidence that there's other things that were deemed safe that ultimately were not proven safe. Yeah, I think you alluded to it that in this area, we're still super early and at very much like the tip of the iceberg. And so there's still a ton of data we don't know just because these brands are just starting to maybe come on the market. And obviously in food science, this is a very just new territory that we're experiencing. So we're in some cases also kind of the test dummies too, right? If you actually try and actually eat the stuff. And I'm all for innovation. I just want to make sure we're grounded that there are risks mm -hmm. to ingesting technology that's never been ingested in human history. And I just think we have, to be, we have to have an open conversation about it, and we have to let, you know, there are some opponents of what I'm saying who aren't for transparent labeling because they don't want the consumers to get scared because they want to progress the agenda. 
But I think all consumers should have all full information and make their own decisions. Yeah, no, no, totally. So with Human Code, love to kind of know a bit more about the future. You're obviously in the pizza business, you're in the pizza bite business, and you're in the ice cream business. How do you think about new categories that you're interested in, and are you also thinking about going beyond food within health and wellness? Yeah, I mean, you know, a big part of what we do is we look for categories where we think the market leader of that category isn't doing things that's good enough for what we think should be in the world. You know, our stated mission is to focus on anything that you put inside of your body or anything that you put on your body. So inside of your body is obviously food, beverage, supplements, nutrition. Anything you put on your body is everything from personal care to household products, you know, things like lotions and soaps and shampoos, etc. We've looked at many hundreds of companies over the last three years, and we both incubate and buy We like to partner with entrepreneurs who share our philosophy and share our mission of making the world a better place because there aren't a lot of places for those kind of entrepreneurs. You know, many entrepreneurs don't want to sell to a large public corporation, um, and many entrepreneurs want to keep doing what they're doing. And so, you know, we're focused on basically creating a home for entrepreneurs to just keep doing what they're doing and trying to make stuff that people want and make stuff that, you know, is really helping people live healthier, more sustainable lives. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think that what's also pretty interesting, too, is the categories that you're in, they're obviously very large categories, right? They're yep. not, nothing new there. Are you thinking about remaining, when you think about new products, a better-for-you version, per se, in, like, a large category, or introducing maybe your own products that are, you know, quite different or, or, or no one's seen before? I mean, we're trying to make a difference, which means that we have to focus on things that a lot of people are going to consume. You know, I try to warn a lot of entrepreneurs who are doing very niche kind of things that if you're actually trying to improve people's lives and trying to affect change, the first thing is you can't do it if you don't have a business. So you do have to marry, you know, having an economical business with, you know, doing good because you can't help anybody if your business doesn't survive. And it's also difficult if you're focusing on really, really, really niche areas that aren't approachable for the masses. So we're generally looking at areas that can help and affect a lot of people. Some of them are smaller than others, but we're generally you know, taking that approach. Yeah, since I know I've met like a few entrepreneurs here, what's one piece of advice you might have for them in this current climate? Well, the first one I just mentioned, which is don't go overly niche. You know, it's very, very hard to change people's habits unless you have a lot of money to do so. That would be my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice, what you think the world needs as opposed to just looking at like current TAM. I know these two things that I'm saying sound a little bit contradictory, but when we were launching Hugh Chocolate, you know, nine years ago now, a lot of kind of my investor friends were looking at the TAM, which stands for Total Addressable Market. And they were saying, well, you know, and the data was never accurate, but they were saying, you know, well, the TAM for healthy chocolate's only like $50 million. And the TAM for regular chocolate's like $30 billion. And they were saying, why are you going into a TAM that's only $50 million? You're not going to really take much of that. And, you know, there's this sort of prevailing view of, you know, you have to evaluate where you're taking share from. But a lot of times you can shift people's behavior in something that's already well known. So for example, chocolate's obviously not a niche category. 
um, some people perceived healthy chocolate as a niche category, but there were a lot of people that weren't eating chocolate anymore because they thought it was candy. And most of the chocolate, frankly, was candy. Lots of refined sugar, lots of chemicals, lots of junk. And so most of our early consumers of Hugh Chocolate were not people who were eating healthy chocolate, and they were even not people that were eating chocolate. They were people who were eating, full stop, and just wanted to have something that was, you know, dark chocolate is unequivocally healthy in terms of its polyphenols, its flavanols, and, and what it does for, for your brain. But there were a lot of people that we basically provided a better option for who wanted to go back to chocolate. So I think for entrepreneurs, it's really about like studying consumers, recognizing what it is they ultimately want. You know, I think using Cosmic Bliss as an example, I talk to a lot of people who still eat dairy. You know, there are some people who are in kind of this circle and they're sort of even afraid a little bit to say out loud that they still like dairy because there is a contingent of people who want to shame people for eating animal products. And everybody I know who's educated wants to do better. They want to do better for their family. They want to do better for the earth. They want to do better for their health. And so in that example, you know, we wanted to create a better option for all of those people who still prefer dairy ice cream or dairy cheese because there are a lot of those people. I mean, there's literally billions and billions of people who still consume animal products and it's consistent with their value system, but there aren't a lot of like better options for them. So that's, that's kind of how we approach it and those would be probably two of my pieces of advice. Yeah, I mean, one of my takeaways from this is, because I know that you, one of your pieces of advice is not to go too niche or really try to really like reinvent the wheel with trying to change maybe a consumer habit, but also that when you look at categories, look at the overall category, not just the premium category. Like your example with chocolate, looking at, you know, if you look at premium chocolate, it's easy to say that if it was only $50 million TAM, that it's a pretty niche category, right? And you're doing something pretty niche when really, you know, it was, you a, were, niche. It was a niche, exactly, because yeah. chocolate's obviously a huge category. Yeah. And so I think look at the entire category, not just the actual premium side to the category, because you can maybe you know, be able to grow that premium category instead of just relying on trying to take market share. My last question, and we're, we're going to open this up to Q&A, by the way, if anyone wants to ask a question for Jason. Um, my last question for you is, what's one part that you think is still kind of misunderstood about Better For You overall and, and, and maybe launching and premium products? I mean, I think we touched on some of the misperceptions. Nutrition is a very difficult field because there's not black and white science. You know, everyone's DNA is different. Some people tolerate certain things. Some people are healthier uh, on certain diets versus others. But there are some myths that are very, very well established that still get kind of recycled in the newspapers and the common threads that are like unequivocal. You know, fat is good for you. That is an unequivocal fact in nutrition. You know, in many other cultures, the word fat, in English language, the word fat is the same as the word fat Dietary fat is the same as the word that's fat on your body. And so there's been sort of some shame over the last 50 years associated with the word fat. If you're like me and you grew up as a child of the 80s, um, there was a whole fat-free trend with brands like Snackwell's that was one of the worst kind of nutritional myths that, that was like foisted on society that made a lot of people much, much unhealthier. Uh, so fat is good. Uh, egg yolks are unequivocally healthy. That is another myth, the whole like egg white omelet thing. And, and you know, there are many, many scientific nutritional facts that are unequivocal. Um, and then there's many scientific, there's many nutritional elements where there's a preponderance of evidence, but it's not conclusive, but there's enough there 
that you know it's better. And nutritional studies are really hard to do because, you know, typical scientific method with, with other fields is to have a control group, you know, where you give them one thing and then to have an experimental group where you give them another. You can't do that in nutrition because it, it, it's not humane to subject humans to something that you know is not good for them. And so all the nutritional science that we have today predominantly comes from what are called epidemiological studies, which is like looking at cohorts of people and saying, okay, this group ate like this, this group ate like this, let's try to draw inferences. And then there's other studies where you're literally polling people, you know, over the course of years and saying, what did you eat yesterday? What did you eat like a year ago? Like most people don't even remember what they ate an hour ago. Um, and, and so those are really, really imprecise. And so, you know, I think there's still a lot of myths, but there's a lot of, of well-known things. And, and basically one of the common threads, which is consistent with how we do things at HumanCo, the more unprocessed you go, the closer to nature you go, it's better for you, full stop. You know, whether it's plant products, whether it's animal products, whether it's everything in between, the closer you get to nature, the better you are. And this is unequivocal, and I'll just end on this note because it's important, because we have been getting a lot of questions recently about different value systems and different diets. So one of the best things to study, if you guys are ever interested in this, when you study anthropology and you study human evolution, most of you probably know that we evolved as hunter-gatherers. Uh, we were a nomadic species. And today, if you go all over the world, there are some groups of people and cohorts that still live as indigenous peoples and still live in sort of a hunter-gatherer type of lifestyle that's more consistent than the way it was, you know, a thousand plus years ago. And they're all over the world. There are uh, indigenous peoples in the Arctic. There are indigenous peoples in South America. There's indigenous peoples in Africa. There's even some here in America. And they all have wildly different diets. It, obviously, in the Arctic regions, like Alaska, where things are very cold all the time, there are very few fruits and vegetables. There are indigenous peoples that live off of blubber and meat exclusively. And then if you go to you know, certain other warmer climates in the, the rainforest or the jungle, there are indigenous peoples who live off of fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds. And then there are tribes that also live off of uh, cow's meat and blood, literally. And guess what? They're all healthy people and they have none of our modern diseases. They don't have obesity, they don't have diabetes, they don't have heart disease. They even don't have things that some people don't view as linked to modern diseases. They don't have ADHD, they don't have allergies, they have no incidence of autism. And what's common amongst all of these peoples and all of these tribes is they live really close to nature. And we are remarkably adaptive as a species. And what we have demonstrated over human evolution is that we do better when we work more closely with nature and less process. No, that's, that's, uh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, well, Jason, thanks again. This has been uh, terrific. Um, we're going to open it up to Q&A if anyone has a question. Uh, we have a microphone as well that I can grab. Uh, before I just raise your hand, I can bring you the mic. Thanks, Mike, for hosting this, and thank you, Jason, for speaking. So my question for you is, what is a better question that you think we should be asking ourselves? And as an example, you were talking a lot about tolerance. So I'm, I'm thinking maybe a question could be, how might we develop more and better pathways to more sustainable lifestyles and dietary transition? What do you think people should be asking? I think this week was really interesting with the Cosmic Bliss launch. And, you know, there's some interesting people in the crowd. Vital Farms is in the crowd, which I'm a big fan of. I really want to preach more tolerance for different value systems. And this week, 
was fascinating because we had so much positive feedback on launching, you know, a much better dairy option for ice cream. But we did get some comments that were very hurtful and were very, very intolerant. And from people who believe there's only one way to live. And, you know, I took it very personally because I've spent the last 12 years of my life trying to make better options for everybody. I have met people who have really bizarre value systems. Bizarre to me, but they're not bizarre to them. You know, I've met people who think we shouldn't kill trees for wood, but are not vegan. I've met pro-life and pro-choice people. I've met people who... I'll give you another really interesting example in terms of the kind of questions you should ask. You know, most people don't know, for example, a lot of what I've been doing over the last year is trying to teach understanding about how the whole food system works. And the food system has some ugly underbelly to it. Most people who consume plants of any kind don't think about the fact that when you eat plants from a farm, an industrial farm, and most most produce that you get in a grocery store comes from an industrial farm. Um, meaning a farm that's in the business of producing lots of plants. Most people don't know that when you have to plant fields or this concept of tilling soil, that when you're tilling soil or you know, making the soil uh, conducive to plant the seeds, that you are killing thousands and thousands of the underground insects, animals, snakes, rodents, moles um, in the process. Um, and that is a choice that we all make to consume plants. But most people don't think about that, especially some of the people who are very angry about any animal products, that you're, by, by creating a lot more plants that are from farms, to do that, you're killing a lot of wildlife to do that. And, you know, I think that's okay, because that's a choice we're all making as human beings. You know, most people don't realize that when you have, like, one of these, you know, most people have never seen what the inside of the Foxconn factory looks like when you make this. There are many inhumane conditions that happen in making this. A lot of people don't think about that. And so I think the really important questions for everybody is to just understand that the food system is complex, that we as humans, whether you like it or not, are at the top of the food chain. We have all made choices about how we want to live our life. Some people are fine having wood. This entire structure is made out of wood. That means a lot of trees were killed to make this structure. And I think the biggest question we should be asking each other is, how do we engage in conversations to show that we're tolerant of other people's value systems? You know, some of these indigenous tribes that I studied, we would view what they do as barbaric. They don't view it as barbaric. And so I think that's a really important question that everyone needs to be asking, that when you hear shaming and when you hear, you know, how could you live this way or how could you do this way? I was shamed when, if you could believe it, when I was 22 years old and I had to give up alcohol and gluten. I had many friends back then. If you were single in New York City in 1999 and you were at a bar not drinking alcohol, all of my friends shamed me. Like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you have a drink? Like, just eat the pizza, it's fine. Have some gluten, you'll be fine. Like, everyone has different value systems and so I think it's really important that you ask people where they're coming from, what formed their value system, and then just to recognize that we just need to be accepting of everybody. Love that, love that. Any other questions? This has been very insightful, and I really appreciate what you've shared. I'm interested to understand more like your philosophy around investing. As you shared, like a lot of investors usually focus on margins, on how you exit your brand in four or five years, but I uh, would like to understand if uh, more like 
longer term investing, if, you're th if you have the patience to invest in, let's say, 20, 50 years, uh, what would you invest in within the food and beverage space? Yeah, so the question for everybody was how do we approach longer term investing? It's a great question. And, and look, part of the reason we created HumanCo the way we did, which is as a holding company and not a fund, most funds have a limited duration, meaning they have to give the money back after some period of time. And by the way, I used to run a fund, so there's nothing wrong with funds. I built my career on funds. Most funds, the way they get paid is by selling stuff, right? They have to crystallize their investments and that's how they get paid. And what I witnessed, and I was an investor and still am in many funds, but what I witnessed is that there were a lot of really good brands that I thought sold too early. And they sold too early because the investors controlled the process and wanted to get paid. And that's fine, it was a, you know, they were great returns. But if you look at some of the really iconic brands of today, they've been built over 20, 30 years, and, and they've had many evolutions to get there. And I wanted to create something with HumanCo that could hold things for 10 years plus. I mean, 50 years is crazy. Like, that would be great. You know, I'll take 10. You know, most people are you know, wanting to sell things after three. But it's tricky. You know, the food industry in particular is a tough business, and part of what's made it tough is there's a lot of middlemen, and there's nothing wrong with the middlemen. That, that's how they make their living. But there are a lot of middlemen who take big cuts along the way. And so when we first started selling Hue Chocolate, it costs us about $1.50 to make a, a Hue Chocolate bar. And we were selling it at Whole Foods for $7. So somebody was taking $5.50, even though the bulk of the value, uh, at least in consumers' mind, was us, and we were only getting $1.50 of that $7. And that's, you know, and the retailer has to take their margin, which is, you know, what they do, and the distributor has to take their margin, and sometimes there's a broker or there's another person in the middle. So the food business is tough. And so you have to think about how do you finance your business to survive that investment period to get to the point where your business makes money. And so in the case of us, we found investors that knew we had a 10-year plan, 10-year plus plan, who are willing to bear some losses as we build our platform. You know, it's definitely not profitable in the beginning because you're building the platform. You know, Amazon didn't make money for almost 20 years to build what you know of as Amazon. And Bezos had to have investors that understood that he had to lose money for a very long time to build what is now recognized as one of the greatest businesses on the planet. So I think it's really important that your investors' time horizons and their expectations are aligned with what you are trying to do. And if you have that match, I think you'll be okay. Any other questions? So yeah, you talked about like the fact that you know changing consumer habits is is really difficult thing to accomplish, but at the same time there has been a lot of success stories in investing in consumer education. Vital Farms being one of them. So yep. I'm I'm just curious to hear like your thoughts on the balance between you know not going too niche versus um, you know investing in consumer education to really grow out um, a brand story. Yeah, look, I, the question was about how do you balance changing people's habits, which is hard, with actually changing people's habits, <laughs> which a lot of us want to do. I, look, I think it's a balance. You know, I, I, I think it's also understanding consumer psychology and recognizing kind of where they are and what, you know, again, everything is a hierarchy. You know, for us, when we did Hugh Kitchen, it was considered preposterous. Like, we had, I had so many people that called me an idiot, that said, you're going to blow all your money, 
No one's ever going to eat like healthier X or healthier Y. They're not going to spend twice for better stuff. I've been my whole life basically doing things that people told me I shouldn't do. So believe me, like I'm trying to be a change maker. But I think it's also then having discussions about how does this fit into your lifestyle? Why is this better? And is it something that actually is irreversible in a good way? You know, the beauty about uh, educating on nutrition is that when you show people how detrimental like drinking cans of soda every day is, it's very hard to go back. Like, I never hear people being like, all right, I'm going to start drinking four cans of soda a day after they spend like a few hours on how detrimental soda is or traditional soda. Whereas, I think there's other trends that are not permanent, that are inconsistent with convenience, with people's lifestyles. Uh, So, for example, I have done like the full, full keto diet several times. I did it once for my health purposes. I did it once just to experiment. Full, full keto, if any of you have done full, full keto, where you're measuring your blood ketones, you can't cheat, you have to keep your ketones at a certain level, is extremely difficult to do. It's also extremely inconvenient. It makes you a pariah at dinner parties. And uh, it's also, for many people, and it turns out for me, was really bad for my blood cholesterol and a lot of other blood markers that I measure. Keto is really big and was really big uh, a few years ago. But it's very inconsistent with people's lifestyles and very hard to do, and debatably has pros and cons to it. Reducing processed food and refined sugar, I think other than it tastes really good, has no cons to it. And so I think you just sort of have to think about trade-offs. And for us at HumanCo, we've really been about just providing better options for people in things that they already want in their life, instead of trying to say like, you need to eat functional mushrooms at 4 p.m., which I love certain functional mushrooms, but I think getting people to introduce that into their diet is a much harder battle you know, than, than getting people to have like better coffee. Any other questions? Go once. Oh, okay, great. Come on down. What's my biggest mistake? Oh, I have so many. I assume you mean in this business. <laughs> I don't think you want to hear about like my, uh, my personal life mistakes, which I have many of those too. I would say, and this might sound like a kind of a, a perfectionist mistake, and it's not. I should have gotten into this industry much earlier. I mean, I'll tell you why I think it, and it's not because like it's more lucrative. I was in a very lucrative industry that was destroying my soul um, and destroying my health. And, and literally, like actually destroying my health. And I see this with a lot of people. It's very hard. You know, I was very good in my previous job, and it was very lucrative, and it's what I thought I wanted to do from the moment I was a kid. But within a few years of me doing it, you know, I sort of knew it was at odds with my soul. And and when you do something that's really at odds with your soul, it does manifest in your health. And I know this sounds a little woo-woo, but it's not. When you do things that are really at odds with what, like, you truly want to do, it will manifest through illness, whether it's mental health illness or whether it's actual physical illness. And I got really sick. Uh, and and I, I pushed myself way too far. Um, if any of you have ever seen that movie Whiplash and, and the dr- way the drummer uh, pushed himself in the movie to be the best drummer, I did that to myself in business. And, and in an odd way, I was fortunate that it made me really sick because it allowed me to figure out like it was just not good. And so I I think it's a big mistake for people not to be aware of 
if they're doing something that is really at odds with what they feel is right. And I think there's a lot of people today that struggle with that. And so I think my biggest mistake was not recognizing it earlier. And I'm so much healthier now and so much happier now now that I've recognized it. Oh, that's great. Um, any other questions for Jason? You have another one? One more, one more. All right, all right. Thank you. No problem. Thank you so much. Okay. With all that you've done, have you discovered any interesting new distribution models that could re increase the profit to the producer while decreasing the cost to the customer? Oh, great question. You know, obviously, direct-to-consumer, you know, has been a great innovation. And there's many consumer products now that deliver right to your door, you know, whether it's Butcher Box or Daily Harvest or, you know, most of our businesses have direct-to-consumer. You can order Hue Chocolate directly online. But it's much harder because there's a big footprint on this stuff, especially if it's frozen food. You know, there's like what they're now calling digital grocers, things like Foxtrot and GoPuff that are much more like last mile delivery, Amazon Fresh, Instacart, you know, these are kind of coming in, but, but they're still charging the same kind of way. I would encourage any of you to develop better distribution models because I think the distribution model of today is kind of archaic. It's 60 years old and it's like really, really in need of like disruption. I haven't seen anything great, but we're all working on it because I think it's really important. You won't see more better food until this problem is solved, that she said. Because the producer, who's doing the hardest part of the work, is not making enough of the total value. Um, and that is discouraging the producer from making better stuff. Because it's hard to run a business. Oh, that's great, that's great. Any, any other further questions? Anyone? Going once, going twice? Jason. Thank you so much for doing this. It's, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you, everybody. Keep up the good fight. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for coming out. And there you have it. I hope you all enjoyed that. That was so much fun and just really, really great chatting with Jason. I highly recommend following him on Twitter at HumanCarp. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hold up. 